From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Public school education is the largest part of the state budget, receiving more than 40% of the state's general fund dollars. Recent funding has approached $50 billion a year, and with that, new approaches to improve K-12 education in California. Is all that money and all those changes having the desired effect, making California children smarter and better prepared for the future? We'll ask noted education policy expert Laura Hill with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California, and we'll discuss the politics of education with Dan Walters of Cal Matters. California's educational reforms, are they making the grade? Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side for over 100 years. Learn more at doers.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. In the last few years, there have been a flurry of educational reforms in California. And the state's public school districts continue to deal with these major changes in the way K-12 education is being delivered, uh, assessed, and funded. How's it working out? Our guest is Laura Hill, an education expert with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. Welcome to the Matter Report. Thanks very much. So can you give us a little background on K-12 education in California? You know, how many students, what proportion are economically disadvantaged or English uh, learners, and how do those numbers compare nationwide? Sure. Uh, so California has about 6.2 million children in the K-12 system, the public system. And uh, more than half of our students are economically disadvantaged. Um, that's about 3.6 million, uh, 58% overall. Nationally, about half of students fall into that economically disadvantaged category. And so we're, ter- we're a little higher. We're a little higher, mm-hmm. yep. And we're definitely higher um, on the English learner front as well. So in California, we have about 1.3 million English learners. That's nearly a quarter of our student population. And nationally, that number is about 1 in 10. Wow, so it's about 25% versus 10%. That's another really big difference. That's a much bigger difference. Yeah. So um, the state's approach to K-12 education has changed in a lot of ways. So let's kind of talk about some of those. Um, For example, how money is allocated, local control funding formula. What's that all about? So prior to this big shift for the the change to the local control funding formula, most of the dollars flowed to districts in uh, categorical grants. And we started. Categorical grants are are money where you say, I'm going to give you money, but it's for this specific thing. That's exactly right. Okay. Yes. So we had buckets for uh, English learner children. We had buckets for economically disadvantaged. Buckets is a great way to describe it. Here's a bucket of cash to do this, do this. Take it and do that with those kids. And then you tell us exactly how you spent the money. We may not be so worried about the outcomes, but we want to know how you spent it. And this shift um, really changed the way that the dollars flow to the district and gives districts a lot more flexibility in how they spend the money. Um, And the the idea being that districts have more control, they know what to do for their students and the outcomes will improve. And there's also been changes in the federal education law, um, this Every Student Succeeds Act that was passed under Obama, um, Common Core, those kinds of things too. Let's let's talk about the the federal law first, the Every Student Succeeds Act. Uh, What's that all about? Uh, That's 
that's one I'm not as well versed on in terms of because there is still account is accountability. Is it, it uh, is with, accountability, with and I think dollars. that the main impact for California is figuring out how we're going to accommodate their accountability. You know, one of the things though, it's, it's he who has the gold makes the rules, right? And so yeah. there's a lot of money flowing from the state to the local districts, that's right. but the federal government not so much. Yep. So yeah, this law exists, but. I think it's $28 million. It sounds like a lot of money, but the it's reality much smaller is, than, yeah, it's, it's much smaller. What and about, then, so then, you know, what we've done with the local control funding formula is given districts more control. They have their own ways of uh, accounting for how the money is spent. There are federal, uh, state priorities for accountability measures, and districts have some of their own also. Now, these things kind of have to come into alignment. That's the main right, impact right, from ESSA. The, right. Um, and we've also got the Common Core. That's One, right. What's that all about? So not, it's not a prescribed curriculum, uh, it's something that the state opted into along with a lot of other states. The idea is that now there are standards that are expected at each grade level for math and English, um, English language arts. And this is all about getting students college and career ready. Um, but it's up to states and districts and teachers to figure out how to implement right. those. Um, we have guidance. But this but wasn't not. a federal thing. This was actually governors got together and That's decided right. what this was going to there be. There were incentives from the federal government, right. but states opted in. Um, so have, have all these uh, reforms improved performance? What, what grade would you assign uh, all these educational reforms? A passing grade? Not passing? Uh, I, I Incomplete? Think I, it's not very satisfying for me to tell you this, but I think it's sort of too soon to say in many ways okay. because there have been so many uh, changes with the change in the funding formula, the way that districts now have more control, um, the emphases that they are to be placing on English learners and economically disadvantaged students. Uh, we've changed the curriculum, we've changed the testing. We've only been using this new test for three years. The first year where we could measure change from started in, in 15, we looked at 16, there was a lot of growth on the first year of the test. 17 results have just come out, pretty flat. So no I mean, one needs a longer trend line. Maybe. Yeah, I think we need a longer trend line. I don't think people are going to be satisfied with the last year. Let me ask you this: this last question in this segment, and that is high need students. I mean, the mm -hmm. focus on a lot of this is low income English learners, foster youth, others. Has that an impact there? Is it close the achievement gap? So, the good news was in the first year that everyone did somewhat better, um, and and maybe economically disadvantaged students did a little bit better than the average students. So. There's a very tiny narrowing of the gap um, in that first, the second year of testing. So we right. can see growth with the first year. Last year, there really wasn't much change at all. So again, we have to kind of wait and see. Yeah. Well, up next, we're going to talk about some of the new challenges created by the state's educational reforms. What are they? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, the state's raft of educational reforms have created new challenges for local school districts. What are they and how are they coping with those situations? Uh, our guest is Laura Hill, an ex education expert with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. So there's been a lot of talk about Common Core. Any parent who has a kid in, in school has heard about this. How's the implementation been going? Well, I think the results in the early years are sort of mixed. I think there was a lot of concern about how it was going to go with everything from, you know, how are we going to change the way we're teaching, um, how are we going to actually administer this assessment that now is going to rely on computers um, when we haven't been doing that before? Are we going to even have the bandwidth at our schools to do it? So, so those are some of the early concerns, and, and some of those early concerns are kind of over. We're still, but we're still deep in the implementation phase. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, they have uh, books and stuff that had to kind of uh, match up with what the Common Core was, mm -hmm. and the tests had to match up. There was a kind of a shakeout period going on there right. uh, for a while. 
Um, I want to ask you about, you were talking earlier about the local control funding formula, where they changed from categoricals, pots of buckets of money, I think mm -hmm. you described it as, um, to a situation where here's the money, use it the best way you see fit. Can you explain how that process has worked? Um, how is it being implemented at the local level? So it started um, in about 2013, and the idea was that we kind of would be able to tell at the district level what the ultimate uh, dollar amount was going to be for the district, because it's based on accounts of students and um, the share of your students that are high needs, but it's been being implemented over many years, and the goal was to have it be complete by 2021. We're ahead of schedule because the economy's been doing better. Um, but what I'd like to do is give an example, I think, of sure. how it works. Um, so if you've got two school districts that are similar sizes, they're gonna, they can end up with very different funding streams from the local control funding yeah. formula depending on um, the population that they serve. So for example, we've got Fremont Unified and Stockton Unified. They each have about the same number of students, about 35,000. So that means that the main grant that they get is the base grant. So the base grant, they both get that. They both get that, okay. and they get it about, it's about $7,000 a kid. Okay. So they end up with, I think, about $260 million each from the base grant. But $7,000 a kid is kind of the weird starting point. That's your basic okay. starting point. There's some modifications, but that's okay. basically it. And then um, all schools, or all school districts uh, that have any high-need students, and high-need students are English learners, foster youth, economically disadvantaged. People that you'd expect that might need a little more attention. That's right. Okay. Each, each child generates 20% uh, more on top of the base grant for those two districts. A little for bonus. The, a little bonus, a supplemental grant. Okay. So Fremont has 31% of its students that are high needs. Stockton Unified's got 86%. Big difference in, this, right. in the student need there. So uh, Fremont gets about 17 million from this grant and Stockton gets about $45 million. Wow, that, big, that big is difference. a huge difference. And then there's the concentration grant. So district- Another? Another okay. grant. Another level, okay. So districts that serve um, more than 55% of their population is high needs qualify for the, the concentration grant for their students. So it's a little more money, and that's by district, not by school. That's right, none of this is by school. Okay. Um, so Stockton Unified gets an additional like 41 million from the concentration grant, and Fremont gets nothing, because they serve 31%. Wow. So, but that's all based on need. So you just end up with um, similar counts of students with very different um, One's approaching $90 million, the other is you know, 17 or $18 million, quite a, quite a big difference in that extra money. In the money. extra part, that's yeah. right. Um, and the idea there is, again, to help those districts that have a lot of students who maybe need more attention. Exactly. That's the idea behind it. Um, so uh, you've noted that the fiscal picture for K-12 education has improved, but more work needs to be done. What are some of the things that still need attention? Well, one central question that we really didn't answer with the local control funding formula is how much money is actually enough. So we're really back to where we were prior to the recession in terms of the outflow of dollars from the state to districts. We've, we've moved it around. Uh, we're catching up to where we were. We had period of not having anything like what we were used to. But we haven't really been able to answer the question of is this the right amount or the right blend. Because there was money coming and then was the Great Recession, mm -hmm. a real reduction. And That's so right. now there's more money, but we're trying to get back to where we were. We're back there, but is that, would we say, you know, prior to the recession that that was really enough money for education? So that's, that's one big question. What about special ed? Um, what are the issues there? Well, special education was left out of the lo local control funding formula. You know, special education is different in many ways. It's not integrated with the general, um, 
with the general education in both in the finances and in accountability. Uh, so there are a number, there was a task force a few years ago, we did some work on the idea of like what would it look like if we could integrate um, would we be able to improve in, out, accountability and hopefully outcomes for students with disabilities and bring the funding stream into the local control funding formula? What about, uh, I think you mentioned uh, the state's educational data system uh, mm -hmm. and the situation there. Good, bad, needs improvement? We have great data, um, but most people who might be able to use it don't have access to it. So um, the K-12 system has great data. And then each of the um, institutions of higher ed have great data. They are not connected uh, unless you're working with special arrangements. They've got to talk to each other. They've right? got to talk to each other and, and let people help them do some research with it. All right. Well, up next, we're going to talk about charter schools. Are they the answer? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Um, since their inception 20 years ago, charter schools have become a significant part of the California public school system. These quasi-independent, publicly funded schools educate about 10% of the state's students. How have they fared? Have they fared better or worse than traditional schools under these new educational reforms? We're talking with Laura Hill with the Nonpartisan Public Policy Institute of California. So there may be assumption by some that, um, that only rich, white, suburban kids attend charter schools. Um, who actually attends charter schools in California? Definitely some of those children, um, but also African-American students are slightly overrepresented in the charter school population. Um, and when we look at sort of the distribution of um, high need students across charters and traditional public schools, we see at the very high end, so like schools that are 90% high needs or more, charter schools and, um, and traditional public schools look pretty similar in terms of you know, they're, they're both represented in that group. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you've done a comprehensive review of charter schools and how they're being treated under the local control funding formula. What were your findings? Well, one finding of ours that was well known to be kind of a fact, but we just kind of went into a little bit more detail, is that they're treated differently in terms of the way one of the parts of the local control funding formula works. So we just were discussing the base grant and the supplemental grant, and then there's the concentration grant, which is the one that is for uh, districts that are serving. So, so just to go over, and there's three parts then to that funding. Right. Okay. Three parts of the funding. So in terms of the two main parts, the supplemental and the base, charters and, um, and traditional public schools are treated in the same ways. Okay. So then it's the concentration factor. The concentration factor that, that differs for charter schools. So what happens is um, the amount of the concentration grant that a charter school can get depends on where it's located. The district, right? The because district. it's not done at the school level. That's right. Right. So, for so charters, you could have a charter school that could have a lot of high-need students, mm -hmm. but they're not getting that concentration factor because the district overall doesn't have that concentration of high-need students. Exactly. So you can have two charter schools, one that's 90% high-needs but happens to be in a 30% high-needs district. It's not going to get the concentration grant at all. And another charter that's 90% in a 95% district, and it'll get all of its concentration grant. Um, Okay, um, so what's the rationale then for treating charter schools differently, and what are the implications? Well, I think the main reason that that went into place was that the legislators and policymakers were concerned that charter schools might come into being in order to kind of take advantage of the e extra money that's available through the concentration grant, and that maybe districts would game it, or that charter school organizations would game it. 
And a downside of allowing that to happen is that you increase segregation. So I think that was a concern that was on a lot of people's minds. You didn't want to create an incentive for the organizers to pull more money away and to pull the high needs children into one spot because then you're taking them away from the potential benefit of being in mixed environments. Yeah. Um, so you suggest there's, there's some downsides to this approach. Um, those and what other downsides? Any other downsides? Well, the downsides to, to having this um, approach where you can't get that money is there are charter schools that are formed for the express purpose where the, the funders, founders or the, the staff or whatever has as their mission they want to serve these children and they feel like they know how to do it. Provide a different kind of way to teach and yeah. approach because charter schools are a little bit dumb. There aren't as regulated as a traditional school, is that fair to say? Well, I think there are some differences in those kinds of questions. Okay. And, um, but, but at the school site, they might have more flexibility in okay. trying to figure out how to, how to serve a particular population. So in some ways, that would discourage new ones from coming into being um, with that kind of purpose in mind. And they don't want to discourage that. You want innovation and, and want these charters to give, a, have them, give them a chance. Uh, to kind of do their thing. I think, I think you have to be mindful of both concerns. Right. Yeah, and right. so we were interested in understanding like how big is the scope of the problem, how many charter schools, for example, or students are impacted by this rule, um, and how big is that effect. And so it was sort of an accounting exercise in many ways, um, and we determined that on average um, there are about a third of charter school students who are one are impacted by not having full access to the concentration grant and that ended up being about four hundred fifty dollars per pupil which turns out to be about twenty percent of kind of the extra that you could get that's, that's significant so for those students that that number can add up um, and we did find that the more high needs your charter school is the bigger this effect Oh, really? Yeah. Um, well, that's interesting. So what impact is all this? You assume that more money leads to better performance. Right. Uh, is that really true? And what effect has this had, this lower funding on some of the charter schools, on their performance? So we were a bit surprised to see at this early look that we didn't find any outcomes related to having f less funding. Um, we control so there, maybe there isn't a correlation between money and, and outcomes. We want to say that in this situation that we feel like it's a little too soon to tell um, okay. because Charter schools actually did a lot better when the local control funding formula was put into place. So there was a big kind of upswing in funding overall, and then some schools didn't get the full effect, so we're worried about that. But there are a couple of things that we couldn't investigate in this study. One is you know, some of these schools that are having success despite not having all that funding, if they're extra sources of funding through private grants, um, for example. And another question is, you can't control for who selects into these schools. Right. So same example, you've got a charter school and a, that has high need neighborhood and charter school with low need neighborhood. Um, who in the low need neighborhood is gonna go search, or high need neighborhood is gonna go search for the charter school? Maybe that charter school is really doing something good there. You know, that's interesting. And you know, it's not unusual for the legislature to look to the PPIC for ideas for new legislation. So maybe we'll see a modification in some of the local control funding formula as it relates to charter schools. Well, up next, the politics of education reform. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. So what are the political implications of recent attempts at educational reform? We're joined by one of the most astute observers of state politics, Dan Walters from CalMatters. Welcome back to the Maddie Report. Thank you. So, bottom line, what grade would you give California's attempts at educational reform? Yeah, about a C. A gentleman's C? 
Yeah, a gentleman's sea, I guess. Oh, that sounds a little sexist, but yeah, gentleman's sea. <laughs> okay, I'm sorry. Sea. I'm dating myself. All right. Uh, yeah, it's a... Uh, They make a stab at it, but uh, in the in the end, it doesn't matter how good the intentions are, or how sincere they are, or how much money you spend, or anything else. The, those kind of metrics really pale in significance. To do they work? Do you, are they do affecting you, the test scores? Are, are you affecting? Are you closing the achievement gap uh, between? white and uh, Asian kids on one side and Latino, black, and poor kids of all races on the other side. And so far, there's no evidence that the achievement gap is being materially narrowed. And that's, that's why you have to say C, because at least they recognize the problem, and they've kind of done a th what they think is something about it, but you really don't know whether it's working. Uh, or whether it's just throwing money at a problem without any any results. Yeah, the state superintendent of schools is saying the tests are more difficult now, so we really can't tell. I guess we'll see over time whether there's a trend there or not. Let me ask you another question. You had actually written about this, about the later uh, school start time. That was a discussion in the legislature mm -hmm. this year. I think of particular interest to parents and students. Uh, that's one attention grabber for sure. Uh, but you said the legislature muffed this issue. Why do you say they muffed it? Because they didn't do it. They didn't. They didn't uh, require school districts to start no later than 8:30 in the morning, even though all the studies by pediatric groups, doctors, everybody says that early start times hurt learning because they they run counter to the natural circadian rhythms of adolescence. Adolescents want to stay up late and get up later uh, and it's you say well I just you know make them go to bed earlier or something like that which doesn't really work because it just doesn't mesh with adolescent circadian rhythms and, and well, that explains the physiology of teenagers. Yeah I mean it, it's something in the vein. Later on when you get older like me you you, you wake up really early and, you know. But <laughs> you can't get to sleep or whatever. And you, well whatever but the kids need first of all kids need more sleep. They're, they're sleep deprived. They're not getting however you measure they're not getting enough sleep. The legislature could have done something about uh, they, they dictate all sorts of other health and safety requirements having to do with school children and they could have done this and so I say they muffed it. You know, it's interesting that the RAND Corporation did a study and they found that if California did change to 8.30 in the morning as a start time, uh, that, could, that could, would contribute $10.2 billion to California's economy within 10 years and almost $25 billion in 20 years. So there's an economic reason you might want to do there it. There are some economic reasons, but mostly it's because, hey, the idea of an education system is to educate kids and right. anything that is an impediment to that should be attacked. Take that money and put it back into education. Um, let me ask you another question. Um, you've written about California's response to the federal school accountability law signed by President Obama mm -hmm. um, and you're saying it's California's response has fallen short. How so? Well, uh, California didn't really want to do what the uh, Obama era uh, school law says, which is to identify poor performing schools and demonstrate what you're doing about them. Uh, the whole thrust of the state's quote accountability, and I put that in quotes program, is to not do that. It is to have a, 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 you know, it's supposed to be fixing the schools, not trying to hammer people who are p poorly performing. Now, the federal school law is less draconian than the old 
federal school law, but nevertheless, it does have this stuff. So the, the educational reform and civil rights groups, the so-called equity coalition, has been, has been very critical of the state for its kind of fill in the blanks, don't do anything extra uh, sort of a response to the federal requirements. And, and they may take their plea to Washington and see if they can get the Trump administration to crack down on California. This would be a strange thing for the ACLU to go to Washington right. and ask Trump to do something, <laughs> but it could happen. That would get some press. But Jerry Brown's all about was it subs subsidiarity? Subs subsidiarity. Subsidiarity, I'm sorry. Um, pushing it down to the local level, and so it's kind of a minimalist approach, I guess, they're, they're taking with this money. Let me ask you another question, though, about educational reform and the Trump administration, now that we're talking about it. Um, usually there's conflict, it seems, between what the federal policy is and what the state policy is in, in this current administration. Do you see that happening also in education? Well, it is happening in education, although, oddly enough, they were very much at odds with the Obama people on and earlier, uh, on, on the earlier incarnation of federal school law. You have to also remember that these federal school laws only have penalties that attach themselves to federal funds, which are a very small part of this revenue stream to schools. So they could thumb their noses at the federal government and just forego the money and say, you know, do what you will, we're going to go our own way. And, and I think they kind of daring the, the Trump administration to cut them off for being unresponsive to the federal system. And it's, so it is another point of conflict between uh, Trump and, and California. I guess we're going to see. I want to thank Dan Walters from CalMatters for joining us. Also, Laura Hill from the Public Policy Institute of California. If you want to stay up with state and local politics, you can follow us on Facebook or on Twitter or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. You're listening to the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Charter schools offer the promise of education innovation and an educational alternative within a school district, free from the bureaucratic strings attached to traditional public schools. But what happens when a charter school strays from their home school district and expands into a neighboring school district. That's the basis of a new report by our guest, California State Auditor Elaine Howell. Out-of-district charter schools. Does out of sight mean out of mind? Additional funding for the Maddie Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. Chevron's Colinga Oil Field and Fresno County have been doing side-by-side -side for over 100 years. Learn more at Dewars.com. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Maddie Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. The idea behind charter schools was to improve student learning. But what if money, rather than educational innovation, was the real motivation behind their formation? Our guest is California State Auditor Elaine Howe, who recently examined some out-of-district charter schools and the results were a little bit unsettling. So before we get into discussion about your report, let's start with a basic question. What is a charter school and how are they established? Charter schools are essentially alternative schools to public uh, 
schools as far as elementary, middle school, high school. Charter schools are schools where parents, teachers, the community can come together and say, we want to have a charter school uh, to provide educational opportunities for students in our district. Or in some cases, as we're going to talk about today, the schools are located outside of the particular district. Which is a little unusual. I mean, some of the things they're supposed to do is when they put forth this petition, though, they're supposed to have what? Comprehensive description of what they're going to be doing. They're supposed to have measurable student outcomes, uh, a governance structure, uh, you know, a manner how to connect a financial lot. All these things are supposed to be happening, but maybe yes, maybe no, particularly in these, like focusing on out-of-district uh, uh, charter mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. So what are the responsibilities of the charter school authorizer, whoever authorizes right. the charter school? Right. So that's like, so the, that's like the county board of education or the school district or was, the state, right? Right. I was just going to say it, okay. it's either of those three. Typically, it's a district. Uh, that authorizes a charter school. So the, the vast majority are school districts, right? The vast majority, 80, over 80 percent of charter schools were authorized by a school district. Okay. And so what happens is the the community, the parents, the teachers, et cetera, who want to have a charter school or establish a charter school, put all of the materials together that you talked about, a comprehensive plan, financial, uh, projected budget, how are we going to enroll kids, how are we going to employ people, who are we going to employ, et cetera. They have to go to an authorizer. So a school district looks at all those materials and determines whether or not that information has been put together properly and well established and decides whether or not they're going to authorize that group to establish a charter school. And that becomes the charter. That's correct. Okay, mm -hmm. so charter schools you think okay they're inside a school district that approves this charter school but they can actually be outside the geographic boundaries of the school district can't they? They can. Uh, it's an exception essentially so state law requires it to be within a school district so if it's Sacramento uh, unified School District, their charter schools should be located in the district unless they can't find a suitable site within the district. Then they can authorize an out-of-district location, so it would end up in a different school district. Cannot find a suitable site. That sounds a little right. ambiguous. Well, there might not be facilities available within the district, so maybe they need to temporarily locate the charter school outside of the district while facilities are being constructed. Um, but in other cases, they just decide that they're going to have the charter school outside of their district. But a, a charter school is not just a classroom school. It can also be a resource center, correct? Right. There's a variety of different types. A resource center, online learning, uh, virtual Which, learning can be a charter school. Anywhere. Or it could be a physical, typical uh, school. Okay. So um, how are charter schools funded? Well, charter schools receive funding from a variety of sources. Certainly they get aid from the state of California, uh, much like a public school does. But then there's also some funding through Prop 30, uh, the governor's uh, proposal a few years ago that was uh, passed by the voters. And then there's also some local revenue that they can get in, in lieu of getting property taxes, they get some local revenue. So there's a variety of sources of revenue for a charter school. And is local revenue the greatest source of Actually, I'm pretty sure uh, local revenue is the greatest source. They do receive state funding as well, though. But, but, but that state revenue. funding is based on average daily attendance. So it seems right. like the motivation here is to increase the number of kids in those seats. That was a concern of the member who requested this audit. was Senator Liu, who's, who's now termed out, but she was in education field, certainly, and was very knowledgeable. She had concerns because some school districts uh, where an a different district is locating a charter school in my district, they may be taking kids away, so I'm losing 
ADA, which so, mean, affects my funding as a district. So let me say I understand this. So you have a, a charter school that's been approved by a particular district, but they may not be necessarily operating within that district. They may be operating in a neighboring district that maybe, maybe doesn't want a charter school. That's correct. There are some neighboring districts that have actually rejected a charter school petition and said we don't want a charter school in our district, but a, a neighboring district says, well, we want a charter school, but we're going to locate it in your district. Uh, I, can see, I can see problems with <laughs> this. So we're going problems. to talk about operating uh, these out-of-district charter schools in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Uh, we're talking with Elaine Howe, the California State Auditor, about a report her office recently did on out-of-district charter schools. And I'm uh, wondering, when you start reading the report, you kind of wonder, do some of these uh, school districts that have these out-of-district charter schools that they're approving, do they see them as some kind of like cash cow that they can make some money off these charter schools when they operate these neighboring school districts? Certainly, and some of the, the districts that we looked at, uh, we were specifically requested to look at certain districts, and we did find these districts really wanted to increase their average daily enrollment, which affects their funding. It'll, if that average daily enrollment increases, or average daily attendance, I should call it. Uh, if that increases, then the funding that that particular district will receive will increase. So if I, I, as a district, establish a charter school, but I locate it in a neighboring district, I may be pulling kids from that district. Own, they're not hurting their own district, That's right? exactly right. They're not, they're not reducing enrollment in their own uh, adding district. They're adding two because they're locating in a different of district. Of course, subtracting from the neighboring district. That's so exactly the concern that some of those other districts had. So it, it certainly is a, an ability for districts to generate additional revenue if they are able to get students from a different district to attend one of their charter schools that they've authorized. You know, there's also the issue of administrative fees, right? So, so the mm -hmm. uh, home uh, school district uh, that, that, that has authorized the charter is supposed to take, you know, some money out for administering that mm -hmm. charter school, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's money there as well, right? They can make money there. Right. They can make money there. I mean, what they're, what they're supposed to do is limit themselves to up to 1% of the revenue that that particular charter school receives for administrative costs, for monitoring and providing oversight for that particular charter school. What we found is some of these uh, school districts that we looked at were charging a higher fee. They'd enter into an MOU with a charter school and actually charge up to 3%. They should be limiting it to actual costs or a cap of 1%. So some of them were charging fees they shouldn't have been charging. Well, that's the other issue. Even if you charge 1% but you don't deliver the services, that's a net gain, right? right. You're not spending any right. resource money or labor Absolutely, costs and we did have concerns about the oversight. Mm -hmm. um, so school districts, when they, when, they, when they authorize a charter school and they're going to be in a neighboring district, do they have any obligation to notify that neighboring school district? Right, they do. They absolutely have a responsibility to notify the neighboring district. What is unclear in state law, and we've actually recommended that this be uh, modified or amended to make it more clear, is what's the timing of that? Does it have to be within 30 days? Does it have to be within an hour? And we found some, at least one example, where it was within hours of the authorizing district deciding to have a hearing to consider the charter. So there wasn't enough notification to the district where that charter school was going to be to be located to have an opportunity to you know 
argue, no, we don't want this particular school in our district. So there's no specific time frame in state law. I, I would think that that neighboring district felt blindsided. Right, right. Uh, they didn't have enough time to really put a case together to say, this is why we don't think this charter school should be located in our district. So, so what does, uh, how does this neighboring uh, school district challenge and, and out of district charter. Another concern we identified in the report, there really isn't a, an administrative process for that district that ends up with a charter school uh, to appeal or to go through a process. They actually have to litigate. So it's a very, you know, expensive process and it ends up, you know, in court and there's those kinds of discussions rather than having some kind of administrative process. First of all, enough notice so the district that may end up with this charter school has a chance to get into the discussions mm -hmm. at the hearing and have a conversation with the authorizing district. But number two, if they end up approving it, do they have it? Does that district have the opportunity through an appeals process to say no? We don't. We so don't want this school in our. So district. you've got a situation, and the only recourse is litigation, which, by the way, is then co costing that neighboring district legal fees. That's exactly. So thinking that double whammy. Exactly right. Exactly right. And that was the concern we had in the report and why we made some legislative recommendations to clean some of that up. Now, one of the things I saw in your report was this kind of yeah. interesting quote. It says, the state is unable to determine how many out-of-district charter schools locations actually exist. How can that be? Well, that's because uh, on an annual basis, Department of Education requires charter schools to submit their locations, submit information to the Department of Education. What we found is at least 300 school, uh, charter schools did not report that information to the Department of Education. So the Department of Education did not know how many wow. of the over 1,200 charter schools in California, how many of those were actually located outside of the authorizing district. So you could have a charter school say, even if they do say, you know, there's a charter school, they don't tell you all the locations where they operate, correct? That's correct. That was another issue we identified. We, we identified about 165 charter schools that were out of district, but they had close to 500 locations. So it's not just <laughs> one school, it's multiple. Like it you multiplies. said, resource centers, other types of facilities. So it's a, it's a big problem. So what do you want to see the legislature and school districts do to remedy the situation? Well, as we discussed, one of the things the legislature needs to do is really make it clear as to when a, an a authorizing district intends to locate a charter school in a, in a neighboring district. They need to notice. give them enough advance notice. We're suggesting 30 days because that's what's required for a petition. Not 30 to, minutes. Not 30 <laughs> minutes, not an hour, etc. So that's one thing. And then identify some specific information that districts need to consider before they even authorize a charter. What are the things that we expect to see in that petition before we approve a charter school to be established. So those are a couple of recommendations that we made to the legislature. Okay, up next we're gonna talk about financial oversight. Could out of these out of district charter schools benefit from a little more financial oversight? That conversation in a moment, this is the Maddie Report. Welcome back, I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Elaine Howe, California State Auditor about a report her office recently released about out of district charter schools. So one of the findings that you had was you thought that the the authorizing school district should provide stronger financial oversight to some of these out-of-district charter schools. What kind of financial oversight are school districts supposed to be providing? Well, it's interesting because they are required to do an annual assessment of a particular charter school. But 
they don't really have a specific requirement about what ha needs to be included in that annual assessment. So, so assess it, but we're not going to tell you how to assess it. Well, and each individual school district should come up with some kind of protocols or identify best practices. We mention a couple of entities in the report, uh, the National Association of Charter Schools, um, and then there's a, a fiscal crisis management assistance team here in California that helps struggling school districts. They have a, a, a checklist of best practices. Look for the reserve balance. Look for do they have an annual financial audit? Are they uh, budgeting? Uh, are they keeping enough money in reserve? They should have a certain amount of reserve. Each district is allowed to identify what that reserve amount should be. But are you asking for that information? And when you get it, what are you doing with it? Are you analyzing it? And we didn't see these school districts really analyzing the reports that they were getting from the charter schools about so, their finances. So there's a checklist, but they're not necessarily for, for best practices, but not necessarily being followed. That's correct. So um, charter schools, let me understand. So they submit uh, regular financial reports, mm -hmm. but there's no description about how the authorizing districts are supposed to use those reports. That's correct. That's correct. And we saw, you know, a disparate use of those particular reports. Some districts would look at the reports, but then they didn't really follow up with the charter school and say, oh, your reserve balance is low, or you're projecting a deficit, what's going on? Or looking at uh, their daily attendance uh, information, well, your daily average daily attendance is dropping, so well, let's what's talk going about, on? Let's talk about some of those specific districts. There was, mm -hmm. there was LA Online uh, mm -hmm. that had some issues, um, right. Tri-Valley. What right. did you find? Right. LA Online actually was one school, uh, charter school, that uh, ultimately filed bankruptcy. And what we saw when we looked at a timeline of information that had been reported to the district, uh, it really had some warning signs. You know, they were projecting deficits year after year after year. They were trying to get a loan. They weren't able to get the loan. Their, their average daily attendance was going down. But the school district, the authorizer, was not questioning LA Online frequently enough and sufficiently enough to be able to figure so out this school's the, in the, trouble. The financial uh, caution light is flashing. Nobody's right. paying attention. Nobody's paying attention. Um, and in, in Tri-Valley, what was the situation there? I think they closed some of their right. schools. Right. Tri-Valley also closed uh, a particular school. And it was a similar situation where they're not paying attention to some of those financial indicators, the reserve amount, projecting deficits. Um, their their balances are just not sufficient. I mean, a reserve amount is one, but just looking at their finances, looking at their average daily attendance. One suggestion we had in the report, and we've made a recommendation to the legislature, have a member of your school district on the board for the charter school. As a non-voting so, member. As a non-voting member, so you are getting the same information that charter school board is getting. You can bring that back to the authorizing district and say, hey, these are warning signs. We need to step up our oversight and our monitoring, or we need to step in and, and try to help rectify the problem. Now, you were talking about some other things in your report about how these situations, the closure of charter schools could be avoided. One thing you talked about was written procedures. Um, why right. is that important? Well, written procedures for not only the authorizing district to understand and be able to communicate to the charter school, this is what we expect to get as far as reports, this is what we're going to do with it, but then when we do an analysis, giving a written report back to that charter school saying, here are the concerns we identified, 
we need you to tell us what you're going to do or we'll recommend what you need to do to try to rectify the fiscal situation or some operational problems. So there's got to be some written communication so the charter school knows that the authorizing district is on on top of things and they're expecting a response from the charter school. And in this, it's not like a school district, a host school district or an authorizing school district has to make this stuff up. There's already best practices. That's correct. And what I mentioned, the uh, FICMAT, it's called, it's Fiscal Crisis it's Management. It's always Yeah, there's an acronym. But they go into troubled schools, but they have some really good best practice checklists. And the National Association of Charter Schools also has different types of checklists that that authorizers school districts can use and charter schools can use to monitor their their uh, operations. Now, one of the things you mentioned was having uh, a representative from the uh, authorizing school district on the on the board. Right. Um, Two-way flow of communication, uh, other issues of learning whether or not uh, this uh, they can't support sectarian schools so I want to make sure right. that they're non-sectarian and this right. all helps with that right communication, Exactly, right? exactly. It helps with the communication. Then the authorizing district knows what's going on, has a presence at those meetings. As you indicated, non-voting member can't influence any decision-making, but certainly is aware of what's happening with this particular charter school that that district has authorized. Now, to, you've already mentioned function. some of the uh, recommendations you have in terms of financial oversight. So what, establish a minimum reserve? Right, minimum reserve amount, make sure there's an annual financial audit, make sure those annual reports are, are, are uh, periodic reports, monthly, quarterly reports are being provided to the authorizing district. Uh, those are some of the types of things that we, we felt were really important. And, and they're based on best practices. And written procedure to, to follow, not just right. leaving up there for, for the, them to do it individually. Right, as much guidance as possible, not only for the authorizer, but for the charter school as well. Okay, up next we're going to talk a little bit about academic oversight. It looks like there may, need, may be a need for oversight there as well. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with State Auditor Elaine Howe about a recent uh, review her office conducted on out-of-district charter schools. Uh, one of the findings of the report was there really was a need for more academic oversight in some of these right. programs. So how are school districts who authorize these out-of-district uh, charter schools supposed to provide academic oversight? Well, the, it's interesting because they should be visiting each charter school at least once annually. Okay. But as far as measuring their performance, as far as academic performance, it's typically every five years when that charter school is up for renewal. And we had concerns with that. That's just not soon enough. It's not fair to the kids in that particular school if there are problems with A high school class could have graduated. Right, or academic performance. And right. when we actually looked at some of the indicators, we found that the three charter schools we looked at uh, that the legislature asked us to look at were performing poorly, uh, not as well as comparable public schools in that region. But so if you're not looking at that academic performance Every but isn't year, that the whole point? The whole point of charter schools is they're supposed to be performing better exactly, than comparable, exactly. you know, quote-unquote, regular public schools. Absolutely. But that's the expectation. That's why parents and teachers and the community want to put a charter school together because they may be frustrated with a, an existing public school and they think this charter school will be better for their kids. But if they're not, the authorizer is not looking at that right. academic performance uh, either annually or every few years, not every five years. That's not too, too big a gap. That's too, that takes too long. You right. know, you're saying in your report that the annual site visit doesn't identify any specific oversight activities. It's 
unspecified? Right, and, and what you would expect to see when the authorizer, uh, authorizing district looks at the plan to establish that charter school, they should have measurable outcomes. They should have expectations in that plan. This is what we're hoping to accomplish and provide for our, our students in this particular school. When the authorizing district goes in and looks at the charter school on an annual basis, they're not looking at those measurable outcomes that the school had intended to achieve. Why not? I mean, what are you doing when you're well, going it, in and conducting that annual well, I think it's, assessment? It's like trying to drive uh, through L.A. Without a, without a map, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't know where you're going and you don't right. know where you're going to end up. Right. Um, so I'm thinking then you didn't see really any consistency in academic monitoring, did you? No, not no uh, consistency among the, the uh, authorizers that we looked at. Again, we only looked at three, but we did see some inconsistency as far as the frequency. I mean, they're required to do it annually, but again, looking at those academic uh, outcomes or measures on an, a five-year window is just not as frequent as we think is, is necessary uh, for the kids in that particular school. So it sounds like what you're saying is there's really a lack of timely uh, oversight uh, and feedback. Timely and, as you said, there, there are certain outcomes that we're looking for. I mean, there's the standardized uh, academic performance measures for, you know, we looked at English and math, which is typically what you're looking at at public school. And we have some information in the audit report that shows the three charter schools we looked at were faring worse. The kids in those charter schools were not performing better than kids in a public school. They were doing worse. But if you're not looking at that and trying to figure out, well, why is that? What do we need to do to alter our curriculum or provide additional services to those kids so that they perform better because that's the intent of a charter, any school, but certainly of a charter school. Yeah, I think a lot of parents are working under the impression that, oh, that this is going to be a better way and right. that's not really being monitored. That's uh, we don't correct. know. Um, right. Let me ask this. So the legislature mm -hmm. wants to hold charter schools accountable for, for meeting measurable student outcomes. Mm -hmm. um, are the recent changes in state law make, going to make it even less likely that charter schools are going to be held? Uh, accountable academically? Some of the recent changes have eliminated some of the uh, measures that were in, in state law, but there's also uh, some other modifications that will make it a little bit more difficult. There's fewer indicators. Uh, that's why it's so important to make sure that that charter, when that school comes and proposes, this is these are the measurable outcomes we want to look at, these are the performance indicators we want to use for our charter school, the authorizing district approves that. Well, when they go into measure and look at things either on an annual basis, certainly the five years they're required to do that, but we think on an annual basis, they need to go back to that charter and say, well, you said, you claimed you would provide these services to your students and the, these are the academic outcomes that your students would achieve. It's not happening, so let's have a conversation. Well, let's we have this new thing out. called the California School Dashboard, right, right. that's being mm -hmm. applied to, you know, quote-unquote regular public schools. Is that applicable to charter schools? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it is. I think charter schools are required to follow that same dashboard. But e even if they aren't, they need to have some specific indicators that they're measuring. We talked about the financial, but the academic indicators are equally, if not more important. And if you're changing the criteria, then you don't have any baseline to, to go from. Right, that's yeah. correct. So that can mm -hmm. be problematic. So mm -hmm. we'll end up here. Um, I'm Sure, you want to see the state legislature <laughs> and districts do some things to improve academic oversight? Like what? Right, and we made a specific recommendation to the legislature to amend law to require these authorizing districts to annually 
assess whether or not the charter schools are meeting those academic outcomes. That's a big change. Is, there... that's, a, that's an important change. Yeah. Um, and, and we think, it, you know, we issued this report this last year, so uh, we'll see if any members of the legislature take it up. Hopefully they do. Uh, we had interest when we released the report. That's a really critical recommendation that we hope the legislature embraces. Okay, well, improving out-of-district charter schools. Thank you very much for that mm -hmm. conversation. That was uh, California State Auditor Elaine Howe. If you want to stay current on state and local politics, you can follow the Maddie uh, Institute on Facebook or Twitter or log on to our website at maddieinstitute.org. This is Mark Kepler for the Matterport. Thanks for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the Matterport are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed in the Matterport, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.